0: good morning, church. Today we begin our second sermon in a series of messages that we've titled, No One Ever Told Me. And with these messages, we're seeking to address some often overlooked or even neglected truths of the Christian faith. And so today we continue this sermon series, No One Ever Told Me. There's a cost to discipleship. In other words, no one ever told me there's a sacrifice or a price to following Jesus. Well, this morning, we are going to hear from Jesus in no uncertain terms that there is indeed a cost for following him. And the text we've been assigned for this is Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. So if you have a Bible, and turn about three-quarters of the way through, you'll see the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. And we will be in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14, 25 through 35. There the Holy Spirit writes... Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and Jesus turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross And come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish." Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other king with 20,000 is yet a great way off, the king with 10,000 sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. These two sentences are the opening words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book simply titled, Discipleship, or the English translation is often titled, The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and Lutheran theologian during Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s. And he wrote these words in the entire book, Discipleship. He wrote the book in light of the way he had witnessed the church's response to the rise of Adolf Hitler. Hitler's nationalist, socialist agenda had justified deep hatred of Jews and heartless military campaigns in order to expand the German Empire. Opposing political parties in Germany were soon outlawed. Trade unions were replaced with Hitler's own brand. The press, radio, schools, universities are silenced or overtaken by Hitler's subversive regime. But Bonhoeffer's interest was not political parties or the press or universities. Bonhoeffer's interest was the church of the Lord Christ, because even there he had witnessed cowardice and compromise to stand up against this evil. The question then Bonhoeffer's putting forward is this, Might our allegiance to the Lord Christ cost us favor with the Kaiser? Or does the sovereignty of Hitler exceed that of the Lord Jesus? Bonhoeffer's concern was that German Christians had cheapened God's grace. He says this, Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness... Without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. And what drove this pastor and seemingly insignificant seminary professor, what drove him to publish his teaching in the face of such hostility was texts like the one that speak to us this morning. What will it cost you to follow Jesus? In this passage, Jesus answers the question for us this way, following me will cost you everything. And so that's the big idea of this morning's sermon. Following Jesus costs everything. In Luke 14, 25 through 35, Jesus confronts the fickle, wavering nature of the crowd as it regards following Him. And He urges them to count the cost of being His disciple. Because they're traveling with Him. They're listening to His teaching. They're witnessing His miracles. But Jesus is concerned that some or many have not come to grips with the high cost of following Him. And Jesus uses these two analogies in verses 28 through 32. These two analogies crystallize our need to count the cost of discipleship. So the first one. Look again, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see this half finished tower begin to mock the builder, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So in the same way that estimations are made for a building project, Jesus calls those who would believe in Him to estimate the cost this will have on their lives. As foolish as it is to begin a construction project without any kind of estimation, so it is also foolish to consider trusting in Jesus without doing the same. Jesus appeals to common sense and to a common experience. Has someone ever shared with you their newest concept for a building project or a business endeavor? They have all these great ideas, all these fascinating plans, all the strategy and ingenuity makes their plan seem exciting and compelling. But eventually, somebody has to ask, how are you going to pay for this? Have you counted the cost? The second analogy, verses 31 through 32, Jesus says, What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether the king with 10,000 is able to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other king with 20,000 is yet a great way off, the king with 10,000 sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. I bet he does. It's about to get crushed. So in the same way that deliberations are held as to whether a country should go to war, especially if they're outmatched two to one, as in the scenario Jesus describes, in the same way Jesus demands that we must deliberate whether we are truly ready to take up the name Christian. Are we truly ready to give our lives in discipleship to Him? One of mine and my wife's favorite TV shows is The West Wing. This show is about the fictional presidency of Jed Bartlett, a Democrat from New Hampshire, played by Martin Sheen, who does an awesome job. Well, Meg and I have watched all seven seasons of the show, and some of my favorite scenes through the whole series are the ones held in the Situation Room. The Situation Room is is a real room. It's in the basement of the west wing of the White House. It's a conference room where the president meets with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The Joint Chiefs are the highest ranking officers in the U.S. military. So President Bartlett would meet with the Joint Chiefs when there was military conflict on the horizon. And these leaders would go back and forth with one another. We should do this. No, we should take this approach. We must take this into account. Wrangling and debating and deliberating with one another over the cost of doing battle. Jesus is saying, in the same way these kings ask the question of war, you must count the cost of following me. And so we must ask, Have you counted the cost? I can testify personally to sort of having schmoozed my way into Christianity without having counted the cost of discipleship. I was baptized and confirmed and took the supper and recited the confessions and attended church, but it cost me nothing to do these things. All these Christian activities... But Jesus had no effect on the way I thought about my relationships. No effect on the way I'd spend my life. And zero influence on the way I'd utilize my possessions. It cost me nothing to be a Christian. And I kind of liked it that way. I had no faith. I had no love for Jesus. But I went to church and youth group considering myself a Christian for 20 years. Well, that's the kind of fence-riding that Jesus is exploding with these words. Even to the great crowds. The great crowd is filled with multitudes of potential and would-be followers, and yet Jesus challenges them most intensely to count the cost. So Jesus would have failed miserably the church marketing exam. Nobody would have been calling Jesus for a church growth expert with a message like this. Well, what is the cost exactly? The way we're portraying it in this sermon regards our priorities first. Prioritize Jesus above your earthly relationships. The cost of following Jesus is to prioritize Him above your other relationships. Again, starting in verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what's going on here? Because Jesus seems to be contradicting himself from when he said, love your neighbor, even love your enemy. And now he says we can't be his disciple if we don't hate our families and ourselves. Well, there are several biblical passages that I think help clarify what Jesus means by hate. Passages in the Old and New Testaments. And these cross-references indicate it was common In ancient Semitic languages, one of which Jesus spoke, Aramaic, in ancient Semitic languages, the word hate was used in order to communicate to love less, to communicate forcefully to love less. So when we think of hate, we think of a gut-level, emotionally intense disdain for someone. Instead, Jesus is communicating that if we would be His disciple, we must love everyone less than we love Him. A disciple's affection for Jesus must dominate and influence all of His other relationships. Just a few years ago, on November 10th, 2013, my wife and I had the great thrill of receiving our first child into the world when she gave birth to our son, William. And once William came along, I had the interesting experience whereby all my relationships reordered themselves, to say the least. So if I had an imaginary list of all my relationships ranked from greatest in priority to least, then certainly my wife would be at the head of that list, followed by family and close friends and so on. But as of November 10th, 2013, the entire list of my relational priorities, except for my wife, the entire list of my relational priorities had to shuffle downward. Because my time and attention that I used to be able to give to all these others, now it had to be submitted to the fact that I loved William more. And that's exactly the phenomenon that occurs if we would be disciples of Jesus. Count the cost of following Jesus in this way. Our love for Him must excel all others and reshuffle the relational rankings that we have downward. If not, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 27 Jesus really extends the last relationship mentioned in verse 26. So again, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, and then he goes through all these relationships, but he ends with yourself. If anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life. Well, then in verse 27, sort of an extension of that demand to hate oneself. So verse 27, Jesus says, If anyone does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. So I say that Jesus' call to bear our cross is an extension of self-hatred because bearing a cross includes dying. Hatred of self, death of self. Now we can confidently say that by telling us to bear our cross, Jesus is mainly speaking metaphorically. In other words, He's not speaking literally. So, for example, in the rest of the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and the rest of the New Testament, you don't see the apostles or the other disciples lugging around big crosses of wood. But, we also know from the Gospels' passion narratives, the narratives of Jesus' death, We know from there that the cross was an instrument of shameful torture and brutal execution. There's only one reason to bear a cross, and it's to be nailed to it, hung from it, and to die. So if Jesus doesn't require us to literally be killed like this, then what does the metaphor of bearing our cross mean? Well, I'm convinced that our cross-bearing is meant to find its purpose in Jesus' own cross-bearing. Jesus humbly and sacrificially gave up His life on the cross for the sake of others, even His enemies. The cross-bearing cost of discipleship, then, is that we, too, must live lives of self-denial for the sake of others. We must sacrifice ourselves, our time, our money, our strength, our reputation for the good of others, even our enemies. Being a cross-bearing disciple means that we are marked by mind-boggling generosity. It means that we're marked by acts of service that make outsiders think, who are these people? Why do they prioritize others over themselves like this? Being a cross-bearing disciple means to give of ourselves not as long as it's convenient. It wasn't convenient for Jesus to leave the heavenlies, take on flesh, and be nailed to a cross. Cross Cross-bearing discipleship does not take place unto convenience, but we are to give of ourselves until it hurts. Until we feel the pinch of our sacrifice, our generosity and our love. And so, friends, I put it to you. Have you counted the cost of your relationships? Have you counted the cost of your own life? Have you put it into the equation that believing in Christ means following Him on the road to Calvary? It means following Him to the place of slaughter and execution of yourself of your rights, of your preferences, of your conveniences for the sake of others, for the sake of your enemies. If not, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Prioritize Jesus above your earthly relationships, even your relationship to self. Prioritize Jesus above your earthly resources. The cost of following Jesus is to prioritize Him above your possessions. Verse 33, Jesus says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So once again, Jesus addresses the multitude with a rather stunning assertion. Anyone that does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what are we to make of this? On the one hand, it's safe to say, again, that Jesus is not speaking literally. In the book of Acts and other parts of the New Testament you do not see believers having absolutely no possessions. In fact, there's some evidence that there were some relatively wealthy Christians in the New Testament times, and they are not rebuked merely for being wealthy. So on the one hand, we can decipher that Jesus is not speaking literally. On the other hand... By calling us to renounce all that we have, Jesus actually wants us to consider all that we have as belonging to Him. As the Lord, Jesus must be Lord of all we possess. We must renounce ultimate ownership rights to the sovereign Lord and give them to Him. So the car title is still in your name as far as the state is concerned. But you know that car belongs to the Lord. And the bank account still has your name on it. But you live as if Jesus is absolutely in charge of it and you're going to give him account for every penny. Let me try to illustrate what I think Jesus is getting at here. Imagine you're a teenager and your parents and you ask your parents if you can go to the mall with your friends to grab a bite to eat and to watch a movie. And you're a relatively trustworthy teenager, so your parents say yes. And they even give you their credit card to make your purchases. Nice. Now, when you get to the mall, you have basically, as far as a teenager is concerned, you have basically unending spending power because of that credit card. You have endless opportunities to get what you want. But you don't do that, do you? Because you are controlled by the fact that even though you're holding that credit card, you don't ultimately own the money represented by that card. And you're constrained by the fact that the line item bill is in the mail and you're going to be called to account for how you managed your buying power. That, I think, at least in part, illustrates the mindset Jesus is calling for here toward our possessions and our money. Are you prepared to live like this? Are you ready in a real and ultimate sense to release your rights over everything you own? Are you ready to put your resources under the influence of Jesus and His Word? If not... Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Prioritize Jesus above your earthly relationships. Prioritize Jesus above your resources. That's the cost of following Jesus. Now the question underneath this passage is this. Who in the world does Jesus think that he is? Who in the world does Jesus think that he is to call people to follow him like this? Well, C.S. Lewis had it right. Jesus is either, one, a liar, trying to deceive everybody about being worthy of this kind of commitment when he's really not. Or two, Jesus is a lunatic and he thinks he's worthy of this kind of commitment when he's really not. Or three, Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, savior of the world, and he's worth everything. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, but there's no middle way. There's no fence riding. There's no, yeah, Jesus is nice and interesting, but I'll keep my distance. He's either a maniac or the Lord. And if he's the Lord, the cost of discipleship is everything. And it's worth it. That's the good news, friends. The cost is worth it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew that the cost of following Jesus was everything. And he didn't just write a book about it. He didn't just talk about it, but he lived it. The cost for him meant speaking up against evil. The cost for him meant losing his job. The cost for him meant forfeiting his reputation. It meant going underground to work toward Hitler's demise and for the church's health. And in 1943, the Nazi police, the Gestapo, caught up with Bonhoeffer. And after two years in the camps, in 1945, just weeks before the Germans surrendered, Bonhoeffer was executed in Flossenburg concentration camp. Hung from the gallows. For Bonhoeffer, the cost of following Jesus was literally his life. And so, friends, I urge you, count the cost of following Jesus. It is the cost of your relationships, of your life, and of your possessions. Is that cost worth it to you? Well, I'll now call the ushers forward And we'll have an opportunity to answer that question in taking the Lord's Supper. We now have the opportunity in taking the Supper to say yes to that question. Yes, the cost is worth it. I've sat down. I've deliberated. I've counted the cost. And yes, it is a high cost. But it's worth it. It's worth it to hate everyone else. It's worth it to bear my cross. It's worth it to renounce All that I have if I get Jesus. Because He's better. He's more powerful, more beautiful, more gracious, more glorious than anything or any person the world has to offer. If that's the cry of your heart, then the Lord's Supper is for you. In the Lord's Supper, we are identifying ourselves with the crucified one. We are identifying ourselves with the cross-bearing Savior whose body was broken and whose blood was spilled that we might live. Brothers and sisters, in this moment, as we prepare to take the bread and cup together, count the cost for yourself. In light of Jesus' words here, what will it cost you to follow Him? What will it cost you to follow him? Will it cost you the pain and hard work of enduring in your marriage? Will it cost you your pride to call one of your children or one of your friends to say, I'm sorry? Will it cost you your reputation when you speak up against evil? Will it cost you the vacation house, the extra car, the bigger home? Will it cost you the inconvenience of fostering a child, the inconvenience of mentoring the fatherless, the inconvenience of having a stranger in the home, in your home? I don't know exactly for you. But let's ask ourselves, what is the cost to follow Jesus for me? And then as we take the bread and cup, let's declare, Jesus, it's worth it. The cost is high, but it's worth it. So let's eat and drink to His glory.